Good morning. The writers of the Old Testament frequently employed a metaphor, and that metaphor is that of shepherds. There's a lot more talk about shepherds in the Old Testament than you may be aware of. For example, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, contains the speech of Jacob, the patriarch, where he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. He calls God his shepherd. David, later in Psalm 23, a psalm you all know, does the same thing. The Lord is my shepherd. And then he talks about the shepherd's rod and his staff and the comfort that they are to him. Again, God is shepherd to his people. And then later, if you fast forward on to the prophets, you have Jeremiah. At the time of the exile, there's tragedy, the kingdom is falling apart. And Jeremiah, instead of referring only to God as shepherd, begins to apply that metaphor to men. You could call them under-shepherds. These would be men that God put in place as his regents to care for his people, people like the chief priests, the Levitical priesthood, and so on. But in Jeremiah's day, as I said, things were bad. So chapter 10, verse 21 says, For the shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. And the same thing is carried on in another prophet, Ezekiel, especially in chapter 34. You ought to familiarize yourself with Ezekiel 34 if you've not, perhaps later on today. Just for a sampling, the first five verses contain speech a lot like Jeremiah's, where you have a condemnation of the shepherds. Israel's leadership, God calls them shepherds, and they're condemned. They don't take care of the sheep. They abuse the sheep. They eat them. They take their wool. They don't feed them. They cause them to be scattered. The shepherds are doing a bad job. And then further down, in verses 11 to 16, again, God will be their shepherd. So though the wicked shepherds fail, nonetheless, God will make an end of their evil, and God himself will be the shepherd. He'll go get the lost sheep. He'll feed them. He'll pasture them. God will be their shepherd. And then perhaps more strikingly, again in Ezekiel 34, verse 23 and 24, you have talk like this. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So in the Old Testament, you have first, God is shepherd to his people, and then second, under shepherds appointed by God who fail at their shepherding job. And then finally, God's promised that he'll come back and he'll shepherd his people the way they ought to be shepherded. And he'll do it particularly through his servant David, who he calls a shepherd. Now, Ezekiel was written in, we'll say, roughly 500 B.C., 500 years before Christ. David lived 500 years before that. So when Ezekiel writes, David's been dead 500 years, and he's saying, David's coming back. David the shepherd is coming back. And then we come to the gospel written by John. And then you come to John chapter 10. And we get to language that we're all familiar with. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So in the gospel of John, what Ezekiel promised in chapter 34 about the Davidic shepherd 
It actually comes to pass. He's on the scene. So God has shepherded his people from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then 2,000 years dealing with the thieves and the robbers, those who weren't really shepherds, and now he's come. He promised to bring judgment on those shepherds and he promised to take care of his sheep. Moreover, if you had to guess any kind of place where God, when he brings the chief shepherd back, would meet with his people, where might you guess? You might guess, you should guess, in the temple. That's the place where God in the Old Testament meets with the people. That would be a fitting location, right? For the grand confrontation. Well, that's precisely where John the writer tells us that Jesus is in the shepherd dialogue of chapter 10. He's in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And so now we have that climactic moment of the shepherding motif of the Old Testament in which the shepherd has come. And he's come to the wicked shepherds who are still around in the thief pen, loitering, trying to abuse the sheep, climbing in over the wall, like Jesus said, trying to take advantage of the sheep and lead them astray. And you also have the good shepherd come to do justice against them. And you tell me what those wicked shepherds are going to think about the good shepherd when he shows up. And he starts telling them that they're wrong, that they're sons of the devil, that they don't know God, that they're under God's judgment. And then he starts telling them that he, on the other hand, is so unified with God that he's doing all God's will and that he and the Father are one in taking care of the flock. What will those wicked shepherds think about that? I'll tell you what they'll do. They'll be so angry that they'll pick up stones in their hands in the temple and try to put him to death on the spot. They won't be able to tolerate him talking that way. That's exactly what happens in the first verse of today's sermon text. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10, beginning in verse 31. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 31. Hear the word of God. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we don't presume that we and ourselves would respond any differently than the wicked shepherds when you show up. And so we ask that you would have mercy on us, that you would soften our hearts, give us ears to hear, don't let us stiffen our necks, lift up our heads and make us see the glory of your Son. 
pray in his name. Amen. We're going to approach the text in two halves today. Verse 31 through 33, the angry mob and the works of Christ, and then verse 34 through the end of the chapter, or well, through verse 39, rather. Verse 31 through 33 is, as I said, a scene of an angry mob and the way Jesus responds to them. Now, I'm going to ask you to picture the scene. I want you to use your imagination. I said before that Jesus is in the temple. He's at a feast. There's a lot of people. He's in the portico of Solomon, a covered area. It's winter time. And it says there in the text, in the, the sermon text from a week or two ago, that they encircled him. They surrounded him. They're angry. And then they put this trap to him. They put the bait on the hook and they demand that he say out loud, I am the Messiah, only so that they can put it into him. And he responds, verse 25 through 30, speaking of himself as the shepherd who along with the Father in perfect unity with the Father makes sure that no sheep are ever lost. He says, I and the Father are one. And so they pick up these stones to hurl at him. Now stoning has got to be one of the most horrific ideas that you can imagine. It's the kind of thing you don't want to imagine all the time, but can you give yourself permission to think about what is actually meant by that word? The picking up of large rocks to throw at a human in the middle of a circle until they die, until they succumb to the injuries from the stones? It's horrific. And we find out in verse 33 that that crowd believes they have a justifiable reason for that kind of barbarous, hard treatment. The reason is blasphemy. Blasphemy. That's what they tell Jesus. And you might be tempted to think that this is an irrational, angry crowd with no justifiable reason, but there is actually some Old Testament background for stoning including stoning for blasphemy. So don't turn there now, but Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, 16, contains an example where the Lord himself commands a blasphemer to be stoned to death. Listen to verse 16. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall, shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Now, there are other texts that could serve as a background for stoning, for blasphemy in the Bible, but the point I want you to appreciate now is that the crowd around Jesus who'd encircled him would open up their Bibles and point in there as justification for what they were wanting to do to him. Do you feel the irony of what's happening? Blasphemy out of Jesus' mouth? John's already told us That he's the one who was in the beginning with God. And that he was the one through whom all things were made. He's the word of God. Can he blaspheme God's name? He's the light of the world. He's the one in whom was life. And they call him a blasphemer. So how's he going to respond to this? He's, humanly speaking, in a bit of a pickle. He's totally surrounded. There's people behind him with stones in their hands. Is he going to respond in judgment? Look in verse 32. He says, I showed you many good works from the Father. 
for which of them are you stoning me? Now you see what Jesus is doing here. He's using some godly rhetoric. He knows full well that they would say the reason they picked the stones up has nothing to do with his works, but because of what he said, his words. He knows that. But he also knows there's more evidence that they just can't handle. So he brings out his works and he puts them in front of his face. He reminds them. He says, don't you remember when I healed the official's son? I said, go, your son lives from afar. And he lived. Or the paralytic, when Jesus told the man, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And a lifetime paralytic stands and walks. Or when he fed the 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. Or when he healed the man born blind. And all those people there, they saw it. There was a big inquisition. Can this really be the man? Surely it's not him. It's got to be an imposter. That kind of thing never happens. But it was the man, and they all knew it. They could find no other way to explain it. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of those good works are you stoning me? So we need to pause and connect three dots. Jesus' words. This is a new one. Jesus' identity and his works. Words, identity, works. The Jews don't like his words. I and the Father are one, for example, because they are an identity claim. His words claim something about who he is. But Jesus knows that words alone are easily argued with. So he brings in the works. And the words and the works have the same message. The words and the works both testify to that same identity. They can argue with the words, they cannot argue with the works. We need to think about works for a minute. Miracles. The Gospel of John places a very high importance on miracles. He calls them signs. Perhaps that helps you remember their centrality. You remember the purpose statement at the end of the Gospel. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. These signs, these miracles have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The works are faith-producing evidence about the identity of Jesus. He's the Christ, that means the Messiah, the one God promised would come. And he's the Son of God. He's divine. He's the second person of the Trinity who's come. And you're meant to believe those astounding claims, at least in part on the basis of his works, Jesus knows this. And so he brings them out to this angry crowd surrounding him and says, don't you remember? You have no refutation for the things that I've done. They're proof about who I am and they're proof that God is with me. He's on my side and you are wrong. Now I want you to imagine Jesus in this light the one with the signs, the one who does the works of God, the one with the power of God, the one with life in himself. Imagine him walking through Galilee, through crowds and other people, as truly man and also truly God, 
having life in himself. John said that if everything that he had done were written down, the whole world couldn't have contained the books. Imagine life walking around, undoing the things that sin had broken, taking bodies wrecked and riddled by sin and making them whole. Or people who have died and causing them to come back again from the dead. These are the things that his works testify to. They testify to his identity, who he is, and his relationship with the Father. But the mob is not impressed. The Jewish leadership are not impressed. They knew about his works before. This is not a a carefully reasoned, thoughtful, inquisitive dialogue. They know all of this. They're not going to be slowed down by a little contradiction. They want what they want. They want him gone. That's what they want. But Jesus knows his hour hasn't come. And so he brings out one more piece of evidence in addition to the works that stuns them. They don't know what to do with it. That's the second part of today's sermon, verse 34 through 39, having to do with, as Brian mentioned earlier today, Psalm 82. I titled the section, Jesus Blunts Their Sword. The crowd thinks the ones who've encircled him, that they have biblical grounds for putting him to death. They have a sharp sword, a righteous sword, and they intend to use it. And with Psalm 82, it's as if Jesus snatches the sword from them and grinds it along a rock, totally blunts it, makes it into a staff, and gives it back to them. You have no justifiable reason, especially according to the Bible, to stone me. He exposes their weaponization of Scripture. The people, the leadership, they're selective in the way that they use the Bible. They can't account for all of it. They're biased in the way that they apply it. They're political in the way they deploy Scripture. They want to take Scripture and use it as sovereigns rather than humbly submitting to it themselves. And Jesus knows this, and he exposes them for it. Look there in your Bibles at John chapter 10, verse 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he, that's God, called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, I don't know if you've read this text before, or I don't know if, as Brian mentioned a few moments ago, you read this text before today, meaning this morning or maybe last night in preparation for today's sermon. But if you're anything like me, when you first read that text and you see the way Jesus employs Psalm 82, you don't know what's going on. What does this mean? How is it that you can say he's blunting their sword with this decisive action that stuns them? Let me at first make two observations about the particular way that Jesus introduces the psalm. Look there in verse 34. He says, Has it not been written in your law? That's a rhetorical question. 
they know it has been written in their law. The answer is yes. It's Psalm 82, verse 6. So he's, it's a rhetorical question. He's starting to undo their confidence, you might put it lightly. And secondly, notice the word your. Has it not been written in your law? So they would want to point to Leviticus and call that their law. And Jesus says, wait a minute now. You have more than just that in your Bible. Are you able also to account for Psalm 82? This is in your Bible too, isn't it? That's what Jesus is doing. He's disarming them. But we need to look for a minute at the psalm itself. Brian did a great job this morning prepping us to look at the psalm. Let me just tell you in overview, the psalm is an indictment. It's an indictment. And then at the end, it's a prayer to God to bring justice, to bring judgment for the wrongs that have been done by those who are indicted. There are judges, there are rulers in some capacity whom God has given the authority to execute justice. He's told them what justice is. He's revealed himself to them. He's shown them what's true and what is false, what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. He's revealed himself, himself, pardon me, to them, and he expects them to be his delegates, to carry out his will, and they have failed badly and on purpose. The psalmist describes those people, those rulers, as showing partiality to the wicked. Partiality is a wicked sin to anyone, and they're partial to the wicked. They fail to deliver the needy from the hand of the wicked, so they just let people who are weak and vulnerable be oppressed by wicked people, and they do it with their mouth closed. They say nothing. God knows, and no doubt, they would never have accepted the criticism for doing it. They would have justified their conduct somehow, but God knows. In the first verse of the psalm, God is pictured as coming into a council of judgment. It's time now for them to give an account. Who are they? Who are the judges? Who are these people? Because in verse 6, they're called gods, G-O-D-S. There's been a great deal of debate about who they are. If you go and you crack open all your books, there's not a lot of agreement. I'll tell you, without getting into all the weeds and all the details, I find it most persuasive that it refers to the nation of Israel as a whole. Israel had God's revelation, and they failed to appropriate it in a way that brought him glory, in a way that was in accordance with his righteousness. They failed the entire nation. Particularly, Jesus calls them those to whom the word of God came. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. It's question time. When did the people of Israel, when did the word of God come to the people of Israel? Chiefly, it came at Mount Sinai. They had no word of God. They're rescued from Egypt. They're brought out. God himself descends to meet with them. He writes with his own finger his righteous will in the stones. He speaks, as it were, face to face with Moses as with his friend. He is manifestly present with them. He gives them the entire Mosaic law written. He reveals his righteousness to them. 
And if you know anything about your Old Testament history, do they appropriate it? No. It's the reason that if you go and you read all the minor prophets, the minor prophets are always calling people to repentance and then faithfulness back to the Mosaic Covenant. You've broken the covenant. You're oppressing the needy. You're allowing the wicked to do the same thing. Go back and be faithful. Repent. Go back to the revelation that God gave to you when he brought the word of God to you in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, why does it matter? Am I way off in the weeds here? It matters, as I said, because in verse 6, they're called gods. G-O-D-S. You have to admit, it is an unexpected way of talking. There's not much in your Old Testament that would lead you to have any kind of confusion about whether there is one God or plural, G-O-D-S. There's not much ambiguity. Now, if you read the psalm and you understand the Bible as a whole and you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture as you should, it's clear that there's something going on with language. The Shema in Deuteronomy says... God is one. There are no other gods. But what is going on with language? Why is he saying this? Is it not dangerous talk? What is the deal? Well, I'll give you an example that I think will be clarifying to you. Remember when God called Moses to go to Pharaoh? And God would speak to Moses, who would in turn speak to Pharaoh. But Moses was apprehensive about it because he's not a speaker, not eloquent. And so God said, okay, then Aaron will speak. So God to Moses to Aaron to Pharaoh, that's quite a chain, right? But God describes it. He says, you, Moses, will be as God to Pharaoh. I'm going to speak to you, but when you speak to Pharaoh, you will be as God to him, and Aaron is your prophet. Moses by being God's delegate, by proxy, is as God to Pharaoh. And I'm arguing that the same thing is happening in this psalm. The same thing. They have the revealed word from God. They have his revelation. They're expected to execute it just as Moses was, and they don't. And Jesus picks up on this. They were called gods, have you read Psalm 82, verse 6? It's in your Bible, isn't it? They were called gods, and you're getting me in trouble for blasphemy. You've read Leviticus. Have you read Psalm 82? But there's, there's a step up in Jesus' argument. You're probably familiar with a how much more kind of argument. So like, if you wrestled a bear to the ground, surely you can wrestle this bunny rabbit. If you can make a meal for all those kids, surely you can make one for just me, right? If you can do this great thing, which is more difficult and harder, then surely you can do this easier thing, right? That's the way the argumentation works. That's what Jesus employs in John chapter 10. If those people, those who had the word of God and yet were failures, unfaithful to God, if those who were unfaithful, could be called gods, then surely, surely me. And he calls himself by two descriptions in the text. Look in the text. Did you notice how he refers to himself? Look at verse 36. Do you say of him, 
whom the Father, number one, sanctified, and number two, sent into the world, you are blaspheming. So he's not just anyone. There's an even greater contrast between those who failed to administer God's righteousness and Jesus. He's not neutral. He's the one that God sanctified and sent into the world. And if he can call, if God can call the failures gods, surely Jesus can use the same word. Let's consider those descriptions one at a time. Sanctified. Now, that's churchy language. We don't talk like that. You leave this room, you're not talking to another Christian, nobody says that word anymore. It's not part of our modern English vernacular. It doesn't show up in conversation unless it's an overtly religious reference of some sort. What does it mean? Sanctified. It has to do with the marking off of something as holy. It's for holy purposes. You don't use it for the regular stuff. You use it for holy purposes. You use it for God's business, particularly marked off, corded off, specially designated as having to do with the service of God who is holy. It means that Jesus is set apart by God to do the will of God particularly in a way that no one else has ever been. He's the one that the Father sanctified. And then second, he's also then the one who God sent into the world. Now let's think about that for just a minute. We don't, we don't say when a person is born, when you were born, no one said, oh, God sent you. We don't talk like that. And the reason we don't talk like that is because that would imply that you were somewhere before that. You have a beginning. You began at conception. You weren't sent. You began existing. But Jesus, though he was born from the womb of the Virgin Mary, he doesn't have a beginning. He can properly be said to be sent. He was sent. John told us in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word. And the word was, where was he? With God from all eternity. The father set him apart to do his will and then he sent him. And Jesus says, if those old rebels in Psalm 82 can be called gods, little g-o-d-s, then surely I can. With the Father from all eternity, full of holiness, in fellowship with the triune God, and sent here now to do his will, the chief shepherd, the Davidic shepherd from Ezekiel chapter 34, surely I can use the word. I know you read Leviticus. Do you read Psalm 82? You put it all together, and Jesus has, he says, a unique relationship with God the Father. Unique, not in the way we use that word, I mean in the literal sense. No one else has it at all. A unique relationship with God the Father. That's his claim. And so he has every right to use the word. And they're hypocritical. They're inconsistent in their claim that Jesus is a blasphemer. So Jesus has taken their sword that they intend to use against him and he's ground it down to nothing but a blunt staff and then he turns back to the works again. He's just talked about them and now he's going to bring them back again and it's like now their staff, he breaks it in half and throws it on the ground. They have nothing left when Jesus is done with them. He brings back the works. 
The main point of what Jesus says about the works is this. Either he does the works of his Father, that is, the ones that God told him to do, and the ones that prove that God is with him. Either he does them or he doesn't. If he does them, you have no excuse for believing that God isn't with him. It's irrefutable proof. If he doesn't do them, you shouldn't believe. But if he does them and he knows and they know that he does, you have to believe in him. They don't have any answer for his works. It's like a fingerprint. Everyone's fingerprint, you know, is unique. There are a few processes for which you gotta be fingerprinted. You go and you compare the man and the fingerprint. You put the fingerprint there. You put his fingerprint. Oh, it's him. There's no way around it. There he is. It's irrefutable proof, like a DNA test. There's no other way. It's him. We know it. That's the way the works function. They prove that God sent him, that God was with him, and they prove one more thing in the text. Brian mentioned it. Look there in verse 38. But if I do them, that's the works, verse 38, Though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that one thing, that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, if you read that, you might say, what does that mean? In? What does in, I in, mean? He's already said that he and the Father are one. That's the verse just before today's sermon text. I and the Father are one. And now he says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. He'll talk about this again in verse chapter 14 and chapter 17. But we'll stay where we're at today in chapter 10. What does it mean that he's in the Father. Well, what is oneness? Let's back up and look at that first. Jesus and the Father, Trinitarian theology, Jesus and the Father are one in their essence, but there are three persons. Catechism question. Don't answer out loud. The question is, how many gods are there? There is only one God. Next question. In how many persons does this one God exist in three persons? So the Father and the Son, though one God, one in the other, are not the same person. If you back up into the Gospel of John, it says, as I've already quoted today, the Son was with the Father. They are one and yet can be with each other in the beginning. Or, in the same chapter, chapter 1, the Word became flesh and we saw His glory. They could see Jesus' body. They saw Him. But four verses later, no one has seen God, that's God the Father, at any time. The Father did not become flesh We have seen the Son. The Son is not the Father. 
The Father is not the Son. They are not one person, and there is one God. They are totally united in their purpose, in their thinking, in their action, from all eternity, past to finish. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Whatever the Father wills, the Son wills. Whatever the Father says, the Son says. However the Father judges, the Son judges the exact same way. They are totally united, Father and Son, one mind, one heart, one purpose, no disunity whatsoever. They are one. And then Jesus adds to oneness, inness. It's the first time Jesus has spoken this way in the Gospel of John. What does in mean? It's like a four-year-old, I feel like a four-year-old trying to explain quantum physics to you. It's not possible. You're grasping at mysteries. I'll sit down later. I will not have done justice to what inness is. 2,000 years of church history preaching the New Testament, justice has not been done in explaining what it means that the Son is in the Father and the Father in the Son. Let me say one thing that I hope will be clarifying for you. The Trinity did not cease being the Trinity during the Incarnation. That might sound obvious, but God was triune in eternity past and in the Incarnation and will forever be triune. It's e when we think of the Trinity, a lot of times, maybe it's just me, we think of eternity past. But during the Incarnation, the Trinity was the Trinity. Jesus remained the second person of the Trinity, triune, one God. During the Incarnation, when Jesus walked through Galilee, one God in three persons. He knew the unbroken presence and fellowship of his Father. He said, the Father has never left me alone. He went right on working alongside the Father as he had always done, John 5, 17. He said he enjoyed the unhindered love of his Father. Chapter 5, verse 20. And when he exercised judgment, he did it just like God told him to do it and on God's authority. Chapter 8, verse 16. Everything that Jesus did, including in his incarnation, especially his works in this context, those miracles, those signs, he did them all in perfect, indescribable unity and fellowship with his Father. He claimed so with his words. He proved so with his works. He has a relationship with the Father unlike any human relationship. Now, we stammer, we stutter, we try hard, we don't make it very far in trying to define the relationship between the Father and the Son. The best we can do is repeat the things that Jesus tells us are true. But none of that means that God doesn't mean and Jesus doesn't mean for you to believe it to be so. He says there in the text, believe the works in order that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. There are, there are mysteries that we don't understand, lots of them. You're used to this. 
We can't fully explain them. There are many things that you can't fully explain, and yet you embrace them. You know them to be so. Consider, like the, the proverb writer says, the snake who slithers on the side of that vertical rock, how does it not fall? Or an acorn in your hand, as one old pastor said, already has within it everything that's necessary for the formation of the greatly expansive sprawling oak tree. It's all in the seed already. Or the peregrine falcon. These things fly over half a mile above the ground, scanning for prey. They eat birds, and then they descend at over 200 miles an hour at the flying bird. When they hit the bird, they hit it intentionally in a wing so that they won't cause any damage to themselves at 200 miles an hour by hitting it in the body, and they take their prey like that. They have special shapes in their nostrils, their beak nostrils, that help them to adjust with the air pressure as they descend like a flaming meteor back toward the earth to take their prey. They do it every day. There are lots of mysteries that we do not understand, and yet you believe them to be so. You understand more of them, perhaps, as time goes on, but you don't understand them exhaustively. Exhaustive comprehension is not required to believe the revelation that you have. So my prayer for you, for us today, is that we'll come to know and go on knowing. That's another way of translating that. In order that you may know and understand. It's the same word, know and know, but in a different tense. You could translate it, come to know, and then go on knowing the rest of your life that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and that when you know that, you'll put your trust in him as the one that God sent, the one that God was with and in all the miracles, even his crucifixion for our sins. The Trinity was triune at the cross, and then his resurrection from the dead. My prayer is you'll come to know him and go on knowing his unique relationship with the Father. So let me conclude. The main point of the text, if you consider the whole Gospel of John, the main point is that the Jewish people ultimately reject, in large part, they reject their Messiah. Like chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or did not overcome it. The light shines but not, was not accepted. The people of Israel were unfaithful to God in the Old Testament, and they were unfaithful to God when he showed up in their midst. Nothing changed, so unfaithful that they would execute him according to God's promises. And at the same time, their rejection is not owing in any way this is the message of John. Their rejection is not owing to any deficiency in him. He is who he claimed to be. When the light shines in the darkness and the darkness won't have it, the light is still the light. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, crucified and risen for our sins. John the writer, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, concludes this chapter with the sharpest antithesis, that is, Two camps against each other. There's an antithesis, like when you drive a wedge and the two halves 
irrefutably go opposite directions. There is no middle ground when the wedge falls. That's how he concludes this chapter. The dialogues, this back and forth dialogues of the Gospel of John are coming now to a conclusion. We've been marching through John. There's been a lot of back and forth conversation. The Jews, the leadership will come and they'll argue with Jesus and he'll refute them and there's these back and forth dialogues, back and forth dialogues. But as we progress through the Gospel of John, we're coming to an end of that. Chapter 11 begins with the sign of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then chapter 12, the whole crucifixion narrative begins. This is the end. And John ends it with that sharp antithesis, the dropping of the lead wedge. On the one hand, there's a near unanimous consensus of the leadership of the people of God that Jesus, the Son of God, is a blasphemer. That's as bad as it gets. And you would think they would not think something so low, so mean, so contemptible, but they do. And if you've not put your trust in Jesus today, I hope that you'll see the record of their conduct, the record of their assessment of their own Messiah. I hope that you will have the humility to receive that as a warning of how low the human heart, how low your heart is capable of going, how far off from reality you can be while thinking you're right about the most important things that there ever were in the face of clear evidence. I hope you receive that as a warning and cry out to God to have mercy on you. But on the other hand, the other camp, the other side of the wedge, the light is the light. The life is the life. He was the one, is the one that God sanctified and sent into the world. The witness of his works receives no answer. They don't answer him. The text concludes today, they just try to seize him. They don't answer his question. They don't have any answer for the works. The proof is in their face and they can't help it. He is who he claimed to be. The divine Messiah come to rescue all God's people. That shepherd of Ezekiel 34 who came to get all the sheep of God and bring them back into the pen safe and sound forever having been redeemed by his own precious blood. He is that person. And if he is all your hope, let your soul rest assured again that he is your savior. He will do everything for you that he's promised to do. We sang earlier one of those sober songs about when life comes to a close and you're there, you're old maybe, frail, the body can't go on, you're facing death like pilgrims and there's the great wall, the wave, you have to pass through it, the great trial of death, as terrible and fearful as it is, and you're looking at it, Jesus is who he claimed to be. He will bring you, he will bring you safe to see with your own eyes all the things that he promised the glorification of your body, the new heavens, the new earth, fellowship with God, unbroken, unhindered by sin forever. He is who he says he is. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we need, we ask now for your grace. Let your word sink deep into our heart. Deep so that it makes a dent. Dent so that it makes a mark. Deep so that it turns our heart in its character, in its thinking, in the orientation of our hopes, in the orientation of our desires, the way that we think about Christ, the way that we think about his sheep. Come and change us. Come and have mercy on us. Cause those who were not your sheep to become part of one flock with one shepherd. Cause people to be sobered by the truth that you've revealed. Cause the church to grow. Cause Jesus to be exalted. Make us see the world rightly. Make us see eternity rightly. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.